Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey, everyone, welcome to the 251st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Nathan Bailey, David Redman, and Matt Mendoza. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Emmo. Today we've got Stephen Kepfer on the show. Stephen is an experienced martial artist who's making his way in the world of stunts. He's a, a stunt performer in a ton of things that you have seen and love and know. Everything from John Wick 3 all the way down to devs. We dive into a bunch of that stuff. And he's also dipping his toe into the very early stages of learning how to become a stunt coordinator and so he we've got a wonderful breadth of knowledge he's an like i said an experienced martial artist which is kind of the way that he gets into into stunts but also you know is doing the classic thing that i think that all filmmakers whatever role you're you're playing where you do the kind of the more junior roles on the big big jobs and then you kind of start figuring things out a little bit more on the smaller jobs as well. So he's got a really interesting perspective and we, we haven't talked about stunts in any meaningful way on the show before. We're 251 episodes in and this is the first time we're talking about stunts really. I think it's a great primer if you're curious about action, if you're curious about stunt driving. There's so many different disciplines so we kind of scrape the surface on a lot of different things. And one of the cool things about Steven is he was also in the movie Save Yourselves whose directors we had on the podcast in the past. And I kind of wonder if that's how he found out about us. Perhaps. We never asked him. We should have. Yeah. Also, Ray Donovan, The Blacklist, Madam Secretary, Hobo with the High Kick. He was the fight coordinator on that. Blind Spot. You know, he also uh, doubled for my friend Tim Guinea, which I meant to talk to him about. So, Steve, if you're listening, you know, uh, drop a line again. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, what I kind of love about Steven's story is that stunts is not his first job. You know, you think a lot of physical types of jobs as something that you would be training for your whole life, you know, that you work to be a stunt person or a stunt performer. And Steven uh, was a master in this martial arts form called Sambo, which is a Russian style of martial arts. And because he was a specialist in that, that's what pulled him into the John Wick movies and he met you know, the director and it really brought him into that stunt performer world kind of later in life. So to me, I love, I love hearing of stories of people that are in their thirties and their forties. They're just getting into film at that age because it's inspiring. You know, a lot of times this is an industry that rewards 
the youth and it's nice to hear stories of people that are not in their early 20s getting breaks and finding their way in the industry so that's really a big part of what I appreciate here but before we speak to Stephen I would like to know Matt what have you been working on lately? Yeah, yeah I, I thought that we could have a, a good little conversation about follow-up technique because I am in the situation uh, for people who've been following the show recently. Uh, I've been sending a screenplay out to a handful of confidants and friends and, you know, I'm, I'm in that zone where I'm, you know, asking for notes or more like strategy or like introductions, things like that. A handful of people are reading it and I wanted to, I, I almost texted you, but I thought, oh, we'll just talk about it on the show. How long do you wait before you follow up with someone to, to check in and see if what they thought of the your screenplay or, you know, if they have any new news or anything like that? Yeah, well, so I find that oftentimes when I do send someone something to read or listen to or watch, they will give me some sort of indication as to when they think they're going to do it. So if that if they're like, oh, yeah, I'll try to get to this this weekend, then I would probably wait till like Tuesday afternoon and say, hey, just checking in. If they don't give me an indication, I'd probably wait at the very least a week. Does the runtime or length play into that decision-making process at all? For sure. I, and I guess I'm trying to talk about a feature script. I I think feature a feature script is just, it takes a really long time to read. If I sent someone like a 30-second cut of a commercial and said, hey, what do you think of this? I wouldn't mind bugging them because they could literally just watch it when they get my reminder email and respond mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, yeah. The, the difference being you have to like carve out some time to, to read a screenplay. You can't just do it flippantly real quick, like at lunch or something like that. You have to be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, read this. Yeah. Well, I think we, there are some obvious no-nos that we've seen happen a lot, which is a lot of times someone will send out a script and then three days later they'll say, hey, if you haven't read this, that one yet, here's read this one. And they'll just, and that's the dead giveaway that you've sent them the script too early and you're wasting their time because you're literally changing it and doing things as they're reading it which kind of devalues their notes and whatnot. The problem with that, the bummer with that, is that like as soon as I send something, and I'm sure everyone can relate, as soon as I send something, I realize like, oh, there's a couple things I would change. Yep. Well, let me just tweet. like, And, and it doesn't matter how many times. I can read it a hundred times. I can be like, I love this. This is perfect. This is I should carve it in granite and in marble. Let's like get let's get the tablet out because this is perfect. And then as soon as I send it out, I was like, oh shoot, uh, that apostrophe shouldn't be there. Right. That's why I think, as dumb as it sounds, sometimes I don't. I'll try to send a Dropbox link or something. <laughs> it, I mean, with Vimeo, with Dropbox, it, it kind of doesn't work really anymore that well. But with Vimeo, I do that all the time. I'll send someone a video and I'll be like, ah, this this cut can be a little better, and I'll just replace the file before you know hoping to get it before they watch it but yeah it, it it is tricky that is the thing i think everyone on twitter people talk about all the time like ah i spelled my name wrong on the cover page and i always catch it right after i hit send but yeah i think for a feature and again it probably depends on the time of year it depends how busy things are it depends all that stuff you know i think if you're talking about managers probably a week for a reminder and then if you don't hear back again Maybe one more check-in a week later, and then, then that's and then it. No more check-in. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I told you I had a frame of reference and I don't think it will be very satisfying to you. But I have gotten, actually one of our listeners recently emailed me a lookbook, mood book for a project. And they said to me, this was about a week ago. And they said, hey, you know, I've heard you talk on the podcast about that you are happy to give feedback and look at things. Do you mind if I send you like a lookbook for this movie that I'm pitching and, and working on to get your opinion? And I wrote back and I said, yeah, I, you know, if, if I have time, I'll definitely check it out, send it over. And this person sent it over and I still have not looked at it. I kind of, you know, flipped through it for a few seconds just to kind of get an idea of what it looks like, but I haven't read anything yet. And it's been about a week and I was thinking of maybe trying to read it tonight. But if that person emailed me like right now and said, hey, just wondering if you got a chance to look at it, it would definitely affect how fast I got to it. Because right now, I might read it tonight. I'll probably, you know, read the news and go to sleep instead. But I do think those reminder emails are effective. They are effective. You know what's tricky? Because I think your point is right. Whether it's managers or producers or friends, you know, you kind of have a different expectation or hope from all of them. You know, like if you're a development executive, it's really tricky because your job is to read you know, the, the phrase weekend read is specifically for those people because, you know, they're going to spend their Saturdays and Sundays, you know, reading the first 10 and last 10 pages of a bunch of screenplays. You know what I mean? It's complicated because it's like, I know they've got a stack. They've got to read 10 screenplays on Saturday or, or whatever the number is, right? So being number 11, you know, I don't mind if it takes me a couple weeks I just want it to get read and to get some feedback. You know, what I really want is for them to love it and respond accordingly. And I would hate to be like, hey, read my screenplay. And then that puts a bad taste in their mouth. And all of a sudden they're just getting it over with. I don't think one check in puts a bad taste in their mouth. I think it just reminds us all why the first 10 pages have to be you know, knock them out of the park. Why it's always great to say, hey, you know, Charlize Theron's people have read this and they like it. What What do you think? You know, like anything that can bump it to from spot number 11 to spot number one or two, or even just read the first 10 pages or whoever is sending it to this manager saying like, oh, you got to read this. That makes all the difference. I think this is the perfect match for you. Yeah. So... You know, when you don't have that, when it's just like, hey, you know, my friend's a writer director, he's done this, here are his credits, he uh, is looking to show, have some people read a script, would you read it? I do think it requires a little nudging sometimes, um, especially if they these are people, good people, which I know the people you sent your script to, and they are, they probably have a lot of people to, a lot of scripts to read. And I'm sure they are just as susceptible to you know, what's sure. going on in the news <laughs> as, yeah. as the rest of us. Um, and yeah, what a fun time to be sending something out. Yeah. I think the, the other thing, just in talking it through with you, that's worth thinking about is when in the week it's sent. You know, I know that sounds a little crazy, but like basically you got to give them a weekend or two, basically. If you're assuming that that's when they're doing all of their reading, then, and you sent it to them on a, like late in the week, then maybe you want to follow up midweek after their second weekend, I feel like is is maybe maybe that's too late. I don't know. I'm overthinking it, obviously, but that's the no. Nature that's of a our podcast. job is to overthink yeah. things. I have I'm in a similar sit, not as stressful situation, but you know I've been working on this scripted podcast. I made a pilot, 
with a friend. It was produced by this guy I know who's a podcast producer. He's had some, he just did a podcast for Tenderfoot. Now there's talk about it being turned into a TV show with some really high level producers. So he has some heat. He has some really good reps. I think some agents at ICM and he's working with this agent at UTA. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'm going to finish. He kept pressuring me to finish this thing so he could send it to the agent at UTA. Finally, I did. He sent it two weeks ago. It was kind of radio silence for a week. And finally, I had to bug the producer guy and say, hey, did you hear from the agent? And he's like, yeah, let me check in with him tomorrow. He checks in with him tomorrow. The agent says, hey, I'm going to have Monica like listen to this. She, she works more in the scripted stuff. I do more non-scripted stuff. And Monica writes back, ooh, I'm so excited to hear that. Listen to this. This was like a week ago. So I had, I, and today I got a call from my partner, Julie, on the project. She left, I haven't talked to her, she left me a message like, hey, what's going on? So it's like, she's going to ask me what's going on. I'm going to ask Doug what's going on. He's going to ask that agent. And so, you know, I don't know. It's like, no matter how fast you're going and how much someone's like, I'm going to read this tonight and tell you tomorrow. Yeah, they can't wait. It's just not going to happen. So yeah, it's part of the, part of the, part of the reason that A, you got to make your project as compelling as possible and B, you have to be firing on all cylinders. Not only have that project be going on like five different paths, at least at this stage, but also have five other projects that are going on things. So hopefully as things cascade, you have not all of those eggs are in a single basket. Yeah. Yeah. I actually haven't even sent my thing to my manager yet because I'm waiting to hear about this agent first. So it's like, yeah. Well, and that's the other thing that it, you know, two things. One, the what you just described, I think, is so common and just the speed at which things move until you get some heat, until you, you've like an attachment that like pulls their attention or something like that. Because, you know, all of the those audibles got a, you know, a show with an SNL alum or whatever. That's going to take precedence at UTA over you know, this fresher, different show that you're pitching, right? For instance. So like, it just takes a while, right? Which is why it feels like, oh, you re- you sprint so hard and then all of a sudden it just feels like it's slow motion and it takes three years to yeah, get anything molasses. done. You're like, this is, this is why. And so this is what, just to <laughs> reveal behind the curtain, what I'm going to do is tomorrow I'm going to call this producer that I worked with first and say, hey, should I just show this to my manager because we're not hearing back from your agent? He's going to say, no, 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 let me bug the agent. Then I'm going to call Julie and say, hey, I left a message for Doug. He's going to find out from this agent if the other agent has listened to it yet. So it's just like that is you're pushing a, a, levers a little bit of hands. mind games is, is really good. But I was going to say the thing that I, I do like about having a third party, in this case, your producer, sometimes it's an agent, sometimes it's a manager. It's nice to just like be like, oh, OK, I'm like the sensitive artist. I'm going to bug them. They're a filter. They're a barrier between you know the person you want to reach out to and yourself like they're they're stopping you from like pinging someone too many times if i pinged every actor or producer or agent or manager that i wanted to every time i I had the thought like oh i wonder if they've read it yet there wouldn't be a person in town that would work with me because i would be so annoying I would ping somebody basically every 15 minutes until they get back to me. Yeah. There is that power move, which like does not work nine out of 10 times, but it's the, it's basically what I'm saying. I'm going to try to do tomorrow, which is saying like, Hey, I don't know if you've read the script yet, but this other person is really interested in it. So should I just assume you're passing, you know? Yeah. 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 It it almost never works because they'll just pass on. (laughs) 
and it's an easy out for them. I think I know the answer to what I'm about to ask you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you kind of, when you're sending something out, you categorize them? Do you say, okay, I'm going to go to agents and managers first because... You know, if they sign on board, then it makes producers a lot easier. And then if I get producers, then it makes talent a lot easier. Like, is there a a pecking order or do you just kind of think of all of the people that they would be right to send this to and just kind of reach out to all of them simultaneously? I guess I kind of aim for the lowest hanging fruit first. Like the person that either I've told about this and has shown some interest, you know, like we both talked to a producer that has worked on on converting podcasts to TV shows and we, you know it seemed like natural to reach out to her, you know, on something like this. When the low hanging fruit doesn't bear more fruit, then, you know, I'll go to someone who seems like a right match. But I, I tend to, or someone that's expressed interest or someone that is, is easy for me to talk to, like a dad from my daughter's preschool is easier for me to reach out to than like someone I met at Sundance eight years ago, you know, or even someone that's been on our podcast. So yeah, I kind of try the easy routes first because I am desperate for validation. Um, (laughs) You know what? It's the hard part is that like, I feel like sometimes I set up dominoes for myself where I'm just part of the reason why I'm anxious for them to get, to get a, a quick no or a quick yes is so that I can move on to the next stage. Like if it's like, okay, like every single agent and manager I know isn't interested, great, okay, then I can move on to the next phase. But it doesn't make sense to do that until, I don't know, that's too much of the end low neurosis, but. Yeah, um, I am know. kind of, I mean, I, obviously you know this about me, but, and I think maybe it comes out on the podcast or maybe it doesn't, but I am more of the ask for forgiveness than ask for permission type of person. I would, you know, if it wasn't a, so against Hollywood rules, I would maybe send a script out to multiple actors at the same time to see who's interested, even though you're not supposed to do that. I think with managers and agents and production companies, it's a little less of a rule, but still expected sometimes. Sure. Yeah, certainly. It's it, it's more, it's like, oh, if if someone says yes, then it makes the next step easier. So I don't want to like, like for just as a hypothetical, you know, a manager's reading it and they have a really good relationship with the production company that I would love to partner with, right? So I could cold call that that production company right now or or even get like a decent introduction from a friend or something like that. Or I could wait, see if the the manager wants to come on rep the movie and then go to them with a stronger recommendation. I know intellectually I know that that's the smarter move. But the impatient part of me feels like, oh, I'm just wasting time. And it is, we've both been in the situation where you just kind of, you send it out to people and you wait for to hear back and then you send it out to more people and then the thing just never happens because it, people lose interest or it fiddles away or you can't get people to sign on, right? Yeah. Can I, I'm going to tell you, try to tell you a really quick story even though I know this intro is dragging on forever. But my friend and I, one time we tried to start this company that makes viral videos for companies, brand, branded videos way back in the day, like 2006. And we had this idea, we had this friend that made this video called Shoes that went viral, shoes, shoes, shoes. And we said, oh, maybe let's contact some shoe companies and see if we want, if they want us to have him make a video for them as this like branded content thing. And this was kind of at the dawn of branded let's video. get some Reeboks so my friend let's get some Nikes yeah he went to Anderson Business School the you know the UCLA Business School and he said as a student there I get a directory of all the grads here <laughs> so we went to the website you know this top not secret but like you have to be a, a member of the school to access it 
here's a list of all the all these alumni from the school and where they work and what their position is. So we looked for all the CMOs, you know, the chief marketing officers. Which you could probably do on LinkedIn now. Yeah, that's totally true. And we found all the ones that worked at shoe companies. So we found one uh, woman that was, I don't even know if she was a CMO. She might have just been in the marketing department at K-Swiss. So we emailed her and we said, hey, you know, we are starting a new business. Anderson students, go Bruins, whatever, alumni. You know, we have this company uh, that is a mark, viral, mark, branded marketing, you know, f- and we have this great idea for shoes. Who should we talk to? And she wrote back, she's like, oh, that sounds interesting. You should talk to so-and-so. So we emailed so-and-so and we said, hey, Susan told us we need to talk to you about this thing. You know, we're, we both went to Anderson. We have this business idea. Anyway, we got a meeting with the CMO of K-Swiss. And we went in there, we pitched our whole thing, and he was like, I could just put a commercial on a during, on during a Lakers game and hit get 5 million eyeballs on it. Why would I do this viral thing? That sounds dumb. Anyway, the point is we had zero connections, and we, aside from one of us having being a student at the time, and we leveraged... My, my, sure, but I, I hear what you were saying. My point, I, I, I think, is that I know how to source and reach out to and get an introduction to any company I want, more or less. But I know that in Hollywood, the value of someone vouching for you and the relationship that that person has, once you have somebody on their your team, on the team of the movie, repping this movie, that that value is much greater than, that has the oomph to, to maybe make this a reality in a way that Right. But if you are, you know. let's say you're talking to a manager at Circle of Confusion and they, and you think Lonely Island is a great company to make your movie, you know, and you, you just send him, you, your plan A is like, I'm going to send hit this uh, manager my script. I'm going to have him read it. If he likes it, I'm going to, hopefully he can send it to Lonely Island. And that's kind of, we'll so take that doesn't time. work. Right. The leveraging thing is I'm saying is like, oh, you kind of know someone that worked at Lonely Island. So now you say, to this manager at Circle of Confusion or whatever, like, hey, by the way, I know Monica at Lonely Island, and I think that would be a great fit for this. Like, do you want to read it? And even if Monica, like, who knows what she does there, but she's there. And then you tell, you happen to run into Monica sure. at a party, and you say, hey, yeah, actually, you know, I know so-and-so at Circle of Confusion, like, worked with you on some other projects. He's actually reading the script right now. You triangulating things is super helpful. Orchestrating yeah. things and it's not, a little bit more, yeah, yeah. It's not, like, deceitful, but it's, kind of demonstrating that you understand how the pieces fit together without saying like, please show me how you can fit this together with something else. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And yeah, it it is different than my K-Swiss example, which is literally like, you know, risky, like Michael J. Fox in your way to the top. I mean, even if you, the, the thing is, is that you just know if you getting in the room is only half the battle. Like as a person who's taken plenty of pitches, the difference between me and one other lower level executive going in and taking a pitch and then Chris Rock coming in and taking a pitch and the room is full of 15 executives, there's a stark difference in like the reputation and the connections that a project has determines how many decision makers are going to be in the room at any given time. Right. And in one room, you go into the pitch as a listener wanting to like it and wanting to buy it. And in the other one, you're going in wondering when you can get to lunch. Yeah. Or or like, why didn't I 
give this to Enlow. He's the sucker who would have taken this pitch, and I wouldn't have had to do it. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so that's yeah. that's the balance. Well, hopefully you reach out. What is it? It's Tuesday today. Maybe by Tuesday the end of the week. Today. Yeah, maybe. I think it, maybe. I'm gonna reach out to my person tomorrow. But again, it's like he's a low hanging fruit person, so it's easy for me. Before we talk to Steven, just want to remind you all that we have a Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/justshootitpod. There might be perks of, on there. There might not be. Uh, for ten dollars, you will there, definitely get. There's a hat. certainly perks. For there's four dollars, you will get a sticker. Oren's working on some super secret, very cool perks. I'm working on things. In Matt keeps bringing up their legal questionability of me putting them on there, but I think it's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Tasteful nudes is what we're talking about. Uh, no, but um, but yeah, thanks for all our patrons. We very much appreciate you and. Uh, you do help this podcast keep going. So check it out, patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. At the $20 level, we have t-shirts. $10, you got hats. Uh, $4, you get a sticker. You'll be the coolest kid at your school. Don't put the just shoot it sticker on your laptop at school, right? Is that a bad uh, thing? Yeah, I think it's, well, I don't know. Schools are tricky. <laughs> we are not legally allowed to advise, or <laughs> to advise on that topic. But we appreciate you all. Here's Stephen Kepfer. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Your first stunt was, uh, what, you got shot on CSI? No, Blacklist, yeah. Blacklist. Oh, yeah. Were there squibs involved or no? No, no. There were no squibs. It was all just, you know, done in post. Although we, we did have live rounds, like New York rounds. Blanks. So those are those are designed to give a longer and brighter muzzle flash. The safety distance is about six feet. The muzzle flash goes about six feet. So you got to stay outside of that diameter where you're going to get burned. It's funny. Nowadays, I do like a VFX, you know, a lot of VFX, and I've added many, many a muzzle flash to things. But I have shot with blanks a couple times. I did the that Lifetime movie with Lori Loughlin where she was swinging around a gun with blanks in it. Talk about a scary mom. It, it is scary. But it's fun. It's the first time you do it. I mean, I've fired a lot of real guns, but the first time I fired blanks, it's kind of shocking how little blowback and how little feeling there is. Uh, That's interesting. So I want to dig into just the whole business of stunt performing. But I do actually have a question about the blowback on guns that you were talking about before. Do you find that actors, because they maybe haven't fired a, a live rounds before that they're not acting properly when they're shooting a gun with blanks 
Do you know what I mean? If there should be more kickback, like yeah, does the it kickback make them, is important. Yeah. Not just actors, stunt people too. You know, I mean, any. I mean, let's, we'll just include stunt performers in the global actor category. But yeah, you have to mimic the kickback accurately. You know, it's on a horizontal plane. You see a lot of people who don't know what they're doing, kind of like the barrel points up into the air or or they don't really show the, the recoil in their body. So when you say it's on a horizontal plane, you mean that like it's pushing back towards, towards you, you. Yeah. So if you're if you're aiming straight ahead of you, your your shoulder should retract a little bit. Right. So your your arm moves backwards rather than just standing there like there's no physics happening there. Sure. No force pushing you back. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Well, well let, let, let's rewind just a tiny bit because, Oren, you had mentioned, you know, uh, Steve, you've both performed as a as a stunt performer. And then also there were a couple other terms that you threw around. Can you just kind of walk us through the hierarchy of all of the jobs and which ones you like to do best, basically? But kind of give us a lay lay the land out for yeah. us. Yeah. So I mean, within the industry, there's within the department. Let's just say there's the your general stunt performer. the The top of the food chain is the coordinator, the stunt coordinator. You guys had mentioned that I coordinated a little bit, but I I definitely don't consider myself a coordinator. I don't really, you know, I've coordinated a few student films and some web series, like little things that I feel are within my uh, scope. The same way a, f- a camera operator or a cinematographer or a director, you know, you may be kind of on the bigger shows, you take a maybe a, a more junior role. And on the smaller shows, you can go ahead and kind of, you know, spread your wings a little bit. That makes sense. So the the top, the stunt coordinator is a department head. So he's really coordinating, right? And it, it's, and he's responsible for the safety of not just all the, the performers, but also everybody else on set, particularly if there's dangerous stunts going on. And um, beneath the coordinator, you would have obviously performers. You might also have stunt riggers, you know. Uh, so for people listening that might not be aware, the riggers are the people that set up all the wire work, you know, they they'll break down all the physics and set up the trusses and make sure that, you know, nobody's going to fall when the, the wire's not going to snap. They're going to do that whole process. Right. They take out like the calculator and they're like, how much do you weigh? No, really. How much do you weigh? <laughs> <laughs> There's a really Don't great make app. me get the scale out. There's a oh, really sorry. great app that you guys should stick on your phones. It's called RigWrite. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah, that's just, great. You can just point at a at a set. And then over the camera, it'll lay out all the physics and you can measure angles and stuff like that. It's, it's pretty it's a pretty good tool to have on the phone. So if you know you want somebody to swing from one place to another, you can kind of show the angle that you want to see it from and then put like a starting and ending point or something. Yep. If you need to do the math, you can you can take the picture of, of it and do it right on top of the picture. It's pretty cool. So yeah, you could have a rigger. If there's fire burns, they might bring in a specialist who's dealing with fire. You know, you might have a driving coordinator. So who who's underneath the stunt coordinator depends on on the scene. Honestly, you know, it could be a fight guy, which is pretty much what I am. You know, I'm like a I'm a fight guy that falls well. You know, so there's there's as many expertises as as you can think of. You know, and most of us get into the business for having some kind of skill that we do better than most people. For instance, like for me, it's it's Sambo, which is the Russian style martial art that I do, which is kind of rare, right? But I, I know guys that like uh, when I was on devs, I worked on devs and one of the riggers, his name is Eddie Fiola. So his first movie that he got into the business in was Rad because he's like a oh, cool. <laughs> BMX guy. He's literally the totally guy. Totally Rad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> 
created freestyle BMX basically, right? But over the years, he, like most of us, in order to survive, you have to expand your skill set. So he was one of the riggers that I was working with uh, on that show. But um, so everybody will get something, you know, that hopefully that has something to get them in the door, like maybe you're a pro skateboarder, a race car driver, something like that. Right. Someone who's really good at stapling their nuts to their leg or something. <laughs> Jackass. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's I don't know how many jobs you get doing that, but you might get one, you know, but <laughs> yeah. that but all that's kind of like all that's all the expertise. You'll you'll you, you'll get something that gets you in the door, but then you're not always going to get a job doing that. So now it's about going to school and spending money and learning and, you know, getting all those other skills up to snuff so you can contribute in lots of different ways. So you anyway, you'll have like um, under the stunt coordinator, you'll have any one of those people, then you'll have performers. And then usually you might have what's called a somebody utility stunts. And utility stunts are basically performers, rigor, you know, like someone who can you can put different hats on. Like they're not hired for a, like spe- a swing. Yeah. Yeah. They're not hired for a specific thing per se. They're, they're there to fill whatever, you know, to help out and whatever needs helping. It could be safety. It could be rigging. It could be driving. You know, it's somebody who can change hats. And so would a person like that, a utility person, are they typically on smaller sets or are they, is that a luxury for bigger sets where it's like, okay, well we got all of our different department heads and we're going to have six utility guys to share amongst the department or whatever. Or is it more like, oh, we've got one utility guy to take care of everything? It depends on the project. Like if you're on something, you know, like a Fast and Furious, you're going to have a much bigger crew, stunt crew, right? If you're on something like Save Yourselves, there's very, very few people involved because there's very few stunts, you know? So it it depends on what you need done. Maybe it depends on also like... um, second unit how big is the second unit like are they doing a whole are you doing everything twice do you need twice as many people um things like that like i i've only had one utility stunt contract in four years and that was on punisher for netflix but everything else has been either doubling or performing or playing a character that gets killed or something like that have you ever fallen off a building no no is that a specialty um yeah high falls are definitely a specialty so and, you know, that's one of the stunts that you see less of now with CGI and green screens and stuff. So, like, just for definition, let's just say, like, high falls, something over 20 feet, you know. If you're doing, like, a 15-foot fall in front of a green screen, then they can put you on any elevation they want in, in post-production. Like, Assassin's Creed, the movie that just came out, had actual high fall. That was, like... That was very, like their marketing. High. It was yeah, like Mission Impossible exactly. style, right? They're like, "Hey, check out this crazy stunt we did." But there's ways to cheat it. Like in in um, the first Spider-Man, like the Amazing Spider-Man, there was a, a scene where a guy falls out the window, and um, they built a room inside another room. So they built a, the replica of the room on tracks inside the room of the building, right? So. If you can visualize this, the room where the fight was going on was slowly moving towards the actual window. Like, so the two windows would mirror each other. The stunt person goes out the room on the window of the room on tracks and quickly gets out of the way. And by the time the other person who threw him out the window gets the, to the window to look down at the sidewalk, the two windows have lined up flush. And he's actually looking down to another actor who's just laying on the ground. So it's a complete cheat. I know there's a, there are a lot of coordinators and filmmakers who don't like high falls 
because they can interrupt the flow of a scene. Like you have to wait. But uh, yeah, it's a definitely a specialty. So if you're going to have a high fall in there, you want somebody who's very experienced and good at doing it. Have you ever been thrown through a glass window? No. There's so many things on my bucket list. Like I haven't been set on fire yet. <laughs> you know? Have you been hit by a car? No, I haven't been hit by a car. You can go your whole career, just do it. Like most, like I told you, most of what I do is is fighting, falling. Right. So they're they're calling you to take a punch, not to get hit by a car. Yeah, yeah. Or if it's like a sequence where there's like tw- an assassin, right? And there's like 50 punches and kicks. Yeah, and yeah, totally. And- not that they wouldn't call me to get hit by a car, but I just have, you know, I've been a stunt performer, like I'd say for about five years. So it just takes oh, time. So you're relatively yeah. new. I mean, my my first time working in television was not as stunts, and it's been a lot longer than that. But in in stunts, it's been about five years, maybe a little longer. From like I'd say, from twenty fourteen is when I made the decision to do that. So. Well, and let me ask then, what was what was the impetus? What what was the deciding factor for you to to say, hey, I'm gonna I'm pretty good at taking a fall. Let's do this professionally. Well, it it's funny because it's one of those things. Like from childhood, I always wanted to be involved in this business. You know, I, from early on, I was playing, my father had a super eight camera and I was always making movies with that. And then even as a child, I went to camp, like filmmaking camp and, uh, learned how to edit on the big Betamax decks and stuff. And like, you know, I would go every summer and we would go from script to screen. We would make movies. And it was with all the film students I, at uh, New York Institute of Technology, uh, New York. So I imagine the counselors were the film students. And then I went to School of Visual Arts for college on a full scholarship. And my plan was to get into movies, you know. But I always wanted to be, like, behind the camera. Like, my library, everything growing up was, like, behind the scenes of Star Wars, behind the scenes of this, like, uh, Rick Baker. Like, as a director? No, I was interested in effects, like, special effects and, like, choreography and, like, all all that stuff. And I knew what stunts were. I knew there was this... Thing called a stunt guy, but like, I think that's one of the rare crew positions that people know about, like mainstream people know about. You know, like most people don't know what a grip or a gaffer does. Yeah, no, it's true. Everyone knows what a stunt performer does. I, right. I think there is, though. It's it's interesting that Stevie bring up your interest in kind of like practical effects and movie magic, because to me, the thing that people don't understand about stunts is all of the how technical it is basically not not just you know look you're talking about like oh let me recommend this great app that does the math for you but like there's a ton of rigging and hiding things and it's really like more like dancing than it is a bunch of tough guys and like yeah everybody has to be tough and like you know a little crazy to do some of the things that you guys do but but there's like you know it's not pure machismo there's a lot of uh, technical prowess and ability and experience behind it that is quite nerdy in the same way that like model making and rigging and all of those other effects that you you know as a kid were so interested by like there's there's to me there's a very clear intersection between the two it's it's a hugely technical department and and not only that but like i mean like everybody on a on a production you're very you're working very closely with other departments especially on the big budget things like vfx and stuff like that yeah i think that's like something as a director just to like zoom out from stunts for a second that a lot of times i think it's intimidating maybe you're someone that doesn't know a lot about visual effects or you haven't done a lot of fight sequences or you've never done like you're doing a scene that takes place at the horse racing track and you don't know how a horse racing exactly works like i think a lot of people don't realize like you could just call someone that's an 
expert at that thing and not just interview them, but you can actually bring them to set and say like, hey, help me make this look real. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's like an expectation that you are competent in a lot of things, but specialists in particular know that you're not a martial arts expert necessarily, for instance, you know, or you're not, you know, a genius when it comes to wardrobe or whatever, you know, like you have to be conversant in things. And that's it's really helpful to do your homework and to learn as much as you can. But it's also about showing respect to the people who have devoted their lives to the very specific thing that you were asking them to advise you on. And so like, I think young directors are oftentimes worried that they're not going to come off as knowledgeable. And so they pretend that they know things that they don't know. And that that is the best way to look like an asshole in front of your entire crew. And once you lose that respect, it's really, really hard to bring it back for sure. Whereas if you were like, hey, you know, Steve, this is really your domain. This is what I'm thinking. You know, this is my thought starter. Let's work on it together. Then you're showing your appreciation to everyone and and showing that you respect their safety and their time and their expertise and especially with stunts like you know safety is not something that's taken lightly but it's also interesting that the more experienced the director is the more they're willing to trust other people sometimes i made a movie about a ufc fighter and there's a scene where they're in the hospital where uh, matt hamill's with his grandfather who's not doing so well he has a, uh, some lung issues and um they're sitting down and it's like this emotional scene whatever and, you know, we, we got this ho- access to this hospital at, you know, whatever, uh, RIT or some university we were filming at. And I was like, this room looks great. And I love the doors and I love the angles and let's film here. And they have the de- whatever. We shoot this whole thing. And then the movie, we premiere the movie. And I have all these, all, all my roommates from college are all doctors. And I invited them. And I was like, what do you think? They're like, oh, we, you know, we loved it and everything. Really great. I mean, the one thing is during that hospital scene, like he's in an exam room and like what he has, he would not be in an exam room. You know, just everything medically was kind of totally wrong, <laughs> like in terms of just the type of hospital room he was in. But I think at the time when I was doing that movie, I was like, not even, maybe I was too proud, right? I never, it never even occurred to me to like ask a medical professional, like how to set the scene up. Cause we'd see, I'd seen so many movies where there's scenes in hospitals. It never occurred to me that I didn't know what I was doing. And I think that's like a, one of the signs of like a younger director, you know, is these kind of like slightly inauthentic scenes because they don't they don't want to ask other people for help on things like that. You know, And the flip side is it's okay for you to be if you would ask your friends, for instance, to come come to set those days and they could be like, hey, you know, this is wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. It's okay for you to be like, hey, you know what? We've got 15 minutes to get this scene and I'm going to be wrong on this case because it's important to the story and that's not a big deal. You know, like knowing that you're making that mistake is a significant difference than like accidentally making the mistake. You know, sometimes you're going to make decisions just because production is hard. Like similarly, my wife's side of the family, they're all lawyers. And my sister-in-law is always like, like rolling her eyes at legal scenes. And I'm always, I always tease her because I'm like, look, if you made an authentic movie about a lawyer it'd just be a person reading for six years of their life (laughs) you know (laughs) so it's like no we're trying to tell stories here i know that you don't do these big speechifying you know grandstandy sort of moments i know you're it's a different deal but so anyway we we digress so steve actually speaking though of, of 
younger filmmakers, right? Let's talk about the circumstances where you've been on set with people who maybe uh, they knew enough to ask you to come help out, right? But let's walk through some of the easy mistakes that people have made over your career that you wish you could kind of tell new filmmakers listening at home. One of the big ones is this is a this was a thesis film that I that I worked on. And um, I mean, it's basically I would say for people listening, I mean, what my job was, was to do the same thing that you would do on a big budget thing, which is to help them break down the script. You know, so you read the script, you break it down like this section seems like it's a little stunty what do you have planned here sometimes you know and some scripts are very specific the fight is written out exactly what they want and some it's just like fight ensues you know so there's there you could have one or the other and i'm sure there's times when like someone's like you know molly walks walks down she looks away and trips over something like sometimes there's things that Actually, are stunts that people don't even realize are stunts. Right, right. right. Yeah. When you said things that look stunty, that's one of the things that you would classify as quote unquote stunty. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, someone is going to trip and fall over a table. You know, it could be very simple. It's like even when I wrote to you guys in the email, I said, uh, it's what's interesting to me is not, I mean, the big action sequences are interesting, but it's the little things that people don't realize is actually a stunt. So like with with regard to that uh, thesis film I was telling you about, and, and this happened in others, but in this one particularly, the director writer had written out exactly the kind of fight that he wanted. But, you know, sometimes like this kind of comes back to what Oren was saying and not knowing about the medical stuff. Like he, he wrote out a fight kind of based on how he visualized maybe cool things that he saw on other productions, you know, and then you kind of have to have that conversation. Well, like that is kind of not possible. Like what you're writing is not really possible, but you have to do it in a way that supports them. You know, that like, Hey, I understand. I think I understand. Like, let's put the script down and just tell me in your own words, like what you're seeing happen here, like in your brain, just like, just talk to me about it. Don't, don't read what you wrote on the page. And usually that'll help them kind of solidify a little bit more what they want and then you can kind of come back and say hey well you see this part that you wrote this would really work well in there but this kind of move doesn't connect with that kind of move so let's figure out a way to tell the story that you want to tell and and build some choreography around it you know so so let's break that down though a little bit more so when you say the things that were written weren't possible do you mean from a choreography perspective it's just that like those moves don't make sense in sequence or that the the water bottles don't actually explode in offices or something no, like is it more often than not it's about what they want a human being to do that may not be possible for for a variety of reasons it could be just because it's not possible like a person can't do a front flip and then land in in what you want them to land in or something like that but it could also just be a matter of budget, which is another conversation you have. Like they might have a really great idea for an action sequence. And then, uh, you know, you have to have the, well, that scene is going to take three qualified stunt drivers and you're going to have to rent three cars and then you're going to have to hire, uh, you know, you're going to have to have an ambulance on set. And like you start explaining like what that costs. And then again, it's your job is to not discourage them but to help them tell whatever story it is. And so it's like, so how can we cheat this? You know, how can we do this with one car? You know, how can we do this where the car's not even driving with wipes or, you know, something like that. And so a lot of it is just kind of helping 
directors coming out of school, or maybe they never went to school, you know, they're DIY folks, just kind of understand like how to tell the story in a way that they can get it accomplished. Yeah. You, know? you know, it's funny, you're making me think about there is a very particular moment in a young filmmaker's career that's similar, like thesis films are the perfect example where like you've got enough skill and enough resources to ask, to, to get together a crew of talented people, but then they're talented enough to, to tell you, oh, you need more. Your X, Y, Z things are the things that you actually need. We, we see and know how to like execute the vision that you have in your head and it's we still have more to go to get there, basically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And it's kind of like what you you said before, Matt, about being confident to hand over the reins a little bit. Like I've I've worked with a couple of directors coming out of film school, you know, their thesis films that were very comfortable doing that, you know. And then the flip side, I've had ones that want to control everything. Like one of the biggest mistakes that I feel they make, especially when it comes to choreography, and it doesn't even have to be fighting it could be let's say I, I worked on a thesis film where there was tactical work where it's like a SWAT team you know coming in and they and this kind of goes back to what you're saying like I, I had a meeting with the director we went through who they could cast like originally it was like I would like to cast stunt people who know how to handle weapons right and we went through a, a database that I use um, there's tons of these databases where you can find stunt. Oh, that's interesting. Like like a stunt performer. Yeah, the one the one that's sort of. really popular here in the East Coast and New York tri-state area is called Stunt Listing. But it it has performers from all over the United States. It's I think it's becoming one of the top ones. But there are several, and a lot of them are very specific to region. So there's like um, Stunt Phone, which is a little bit more like Atlanta based, and then out by you guys there's one called stunt players so there, there's several of these and if any of your listeners want to shoot me a private message or email you know i can i can uh, hook them up and if they're looking for somebody in a different region or something but i sat with uh, the director and we went through casting selected a bunch of guys and the guys had all agreed to work for like the ultra low budget rate you know and because it was just you know for fun you know and um, in the end, he it came down to money, and he didn't want to pay that. And so he got, you know, I don't know, he got four other actors that had, when I showed up, it, it, oh, it, what I was going to say is that we had had two rehearsal days scheduled, one for the tactical guys and one for this fight that had to happen. And then he canceled the rehearsal days. And, you know, I'm trying to explain to him, listen, one rehearsal day is going to save you a lot of time on set. Like you may feel like right now one day of rehearsal is a lot of time, but when you're on set and you want to get stuff done and the closer it is to plug and play that day is going to save you time on set, which is much more important than, you know, catering to a, without sounding too judgmental, you know, to an actor who doesn't want to come to a rehearsal day. You know, so I think that's a big one is like the rehearsal days are important. That's funny. That's also a thing where like the more experienced an actor is, the more invested they tend to be in that sort of prep work, whether that's, you know, rehearsing stunts and things like that or or driving or, you know, accents or like, you know, great actors put in the time. And I think, again, younger ones that maybe don't realize what it takes necessarily, you know, look at Tom Cruise. 
right? Oh, well, if, if we could all be, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I would love to live sure. that lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I've done, a lot of the, most of the stunts I've done were like, let's learn them on set. And you just never get anything like a really great choreographed fight. If you're yeah, nothing special. Making it up on the spot, you know, and I always look back at those scenes. I'm like, oh, I wish there were like five times as many, you know, like Gags. parts yeah, yeah. to this yeah. sequence. It's like happened so fast. And I remember on the day we're like running behind and then it's like, okay, punch here, punch in. And this punch looks kind of fake, but we just don't really have a lot of time to get this perfect. And, you know, so it's like that rehearsal day is just so valuable. And it's fun. super important. And you don't get it a lot in television. You know, I mean, that's just the reality because they're doing show after show, week after week, and you don't have a lot of rehearsal, but you, you can. Did you have it for devs? Or was devs a fight? Um, There was a a fight in devs. That's actually how I got that job was. So Zach Grenier, who plays the the security chief in devs, I doubled him on Ray Donovan when they were shooting here in New York. So um, during season six of Ray Donovan, uh, the stunt coordinator, Doc Duhame, um, who is like a veteran guy and also like a lot of you know, he has a, his son is in the business and it's like, there's a whole family thing there. His son, Zach is Brad Pitt's double in, um, once upon a time in Hollywood. But, um, in any event, so doc came up to me and said, Hey Zach, it needs to learn some fighting for this show that he's booked on. It, it turned out to be devs. So Zach spoke to me and then, um, he was leaving for LA like in four weeks. So he came and trained with me for, for four weeks at the gym. We didn't really know exactly what was going to be um, asked of him, you know, but, but he did have the sides, which he was, he couldn't share with me because of confidentiality stuff, but he kind of verbally explained as best as he could remember what was in the sides. And so a big part of my job was just to kind of put him through some basic training to see what his capabilities were, you know, and at that point I hadn't gotten the job on devs. So I was just kind of training him. But then what I did was once he told me the sides, I shot a previs for him with my partner and another friend of mine who's a cameraman with the intent of like, here, here's something, what it might look like. We went, we found a location, we shot the previs, um, here, this is for you. But my hope was that it would get to the stunt coordinator, right? And right. and when you shoot that, are you shooting it to look cool or are you shooting it to be extremely clear for him to learn? Like, is it one wide shot or is it like now from behind this angle, it looks like this punch looks like it. I think we, I think we only did like two cuts in the whole thing. It was, it wasn't a one but you know, it was very minimal. But it, and, so it, the point is it's for reference, basically. Like here is the choreography. If you need to brush up on anything that we've done here, pull this out on your phone and you'll exactly, see. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But um, the, the secondary motive was hopefully to get myself a job, right? So then Kathy Jarvis was the, the U.S. unit stunt coordinator for that show. And um, another friend of mine had said, oh, she's looking for a double for Zach. So I emailed her and then I told her and that he has I was... A sh- he's bald, right? Yeah, he's on The Good Wife, I think. And um, So did you have to shave your head and stuff for that? I did. I did. I did do that, yeah. Um, <laughs> I did it on Ray Donovan. I did it on, you know, on devs too. But, um, I suppose as like a tough guy, that's a part of the job. Sometimes you gotta 
shave your head, I suppose, right? Yeah. Well, on Ray Donovan, I got a little bump for it on my my paycheck, but uh, <laughs> you know, of of all the stunt bumps, uh, uh, shaving your head <laughs> sounds like the safest. So, well, you, you know, know, but the thing is, they know because I for the season I was doubling Eddie Morrison, right? So shaving my head could interfere with with getting work, you know. So they recognize that, which is very nice of them. Like I didn't expect it at all. But um, in any event, I wrote to Kathy and um, said, hey, I double, you know, I double Zach um, if you're looking for someone, you know. And she called me back and then she and I chatted and then I told her that I was training him, that I doubled him on Ray Donovan. And then I actually had footage of him training, so which she really appreciated. So I sent her some footage so she could see his abilities. And then she saw us together. And she's like, oh, you're a perfect double for him. You're and then like, she's know. like... Yeah, she's like, he has to do this fight scene, you know? And I'm like, oh, really? You mean the one, you know, between the two cars and blah, blah, blah? And she's like, yeah. And I said, oh, we shot a little previs. So I sent it to her. She loved it. And she's like, this is a great starting point. And then she's like, can I send it to Alex Garland to look at? And I'm like, oh, what am I going to say? No. <laughs> you know, it's like, so anyway, I ended up. Right. And that's the director slash creator of Death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she ended up saying that, that I was hired pending his approval. And, um, you know, and how did I feel about Heights? Was I afraid of Heights? Cause, uh, I don't know if you know, saw the show, but there's a scene where he has to go out on a ledge and stop. Yeah. 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 So that was like, that's you. Yeah. That's me. Wait, is there, is that real? It's so it is greatly CGI and there's a few little clips in there that it, that's me. And like the drone shots are, are us, the stunt doubles. But we we spent two days with a giant scaffold built up to that ledge, for for Sonia Mizuno and 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 him to do the scene, and then spent two days literally learning how to mimic him, exactly how he walked on a ledge, exactly how he climbs over the rail. You know, like you have to really learn how to be that person. And then we doubled as safety. It's kind of like utility stunts that we were talking about. We were holding the mats because if they fell, they were going to fall four feet onto an eight inch pad. If we fell, you know, it was, we were on a wire. So we did two days shooting the scene with them. Then they removed the scaffold and another two days shooting the scene. We did, we did everything, the dialogue, everything, exactly as they did. What I love about that story, though, and I think the thing that maybe, you know, listeners at home who aren't stunt performers can take home is that, you know, every different person is hustling in their own way. And like doing that homework is the way that you kind of can prove to your prove yourself to other filmmakers. You know, you like you were the easy yes for everyone in the the decision making chain. Like, oh, here's tangible footage. He already has a great relationship. We've worked with him before. He knows the material. All of that stuff just makes it like, oh yeah, it would be a bigger pain in the butt to not hire you, right? And so the more that you can think ahead and predict what your potential jobs could be and and who you want to hire you like the the better you can kind of plan for success in that way and i would add that it's important to do that even if you don't get the job right because there was so many important things that i learned doing that with zach training him shooting the previs even if the previs went nowhere you know that's all experience of shooting more video you know and like my very first interview with chad stahelski from john wick and we were talking and he was interviewing me about the job. He said, if you want to be a really good stunt performer, you must learn how to edit. You have to learn how to edit. You have to learn how to 
shoot. You have to have basic understanding of lenses and you have to know how to edit. And that's just, I mean, isn't it so much easier if on set, the DP is in the camera op are deciding what lens and I can know based on, oh, it's a 40 mil or 60 mil or like whatever. I can know like, okay, this is going to be tight. This is going to be wide. You're only going to see my face. And then knowing how to edit makes it easier for me to perform for the camera because I know what they're going to be looking at later, you know? So like at our stunt group, like what we, every week up until the pandemic, of course, but we would meet every week and we would shoot a fight a week. And there's about, there's about eight of us that train together. And every week, somebody else is responsible for shooting and editing the fight. And they never see the light well, of let day. Let me ask you this. Yeah. If, say, there were New York filmmakers who wanted to maybe contribute in some way or help out, is that something that you guys do? Are you interested in building those relationships? Do you want... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. You know, it's all about the community. You know, it's not about staying within your, your stunt bubble, you know? And, um, I mean, that's when, uh, do you know those guys, like the Corridor Digital guys and um, Freddie Wong, those, there's like these YouTubers that basically befriended these various stunt groups and stunt teams. And I think they were featuring them and kind of promoting them and they were working on their things. And I think they kind of shot to YouTube fame because their stuff, they had these professional stuntmen, you know, making YouTube videos with them. And Matt, I think that's like a real interesting idea. Like people, like New York filmmakers, like a DP, a director or someone, you know, an actor wants to go help you guys out with some shooting and then just you learn a lot and I, I had this dumb idea where it's like if you guys shoot a fight sequence every week like you could almost make like a database of those if someone's like okay and then fight ensues like they could be like ooh, maybe i can use their fight this fight you know let's use fight number seven from uh the kepfer chronicles we absolutely um, do keep them all you know like it's it's all reference material but again during normal times we we do a lot of workshops and trainings for actors, you know, for stunt performers that are even more rookie than I am and and uh and for anybody, you know. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like you you want to be part of the the filmmaking community in the city, but you also have to be choosy too. You know, there's definitely like a, a fine line, but it's definitely something that we do, you know. We've all we I don't have a problem working on for example, like thesis films and, and things like that. You know, I don't have a problem with it. I don't really care. I don't want to say I don't care about the money, but I understand the situation and I and I like the creative environment, you know. Right. And, you know, like all filmmaking, I think every department is like it has its own ecosystem. And so being able to work on different size projects, you know, you can refer people, you can help each other out, you can you know, volunteer on other people's sets. There's a lot of different ways to grow your network while helping out new Absolutely. younger filmmakers. And then, and then it, it just makes your Rolodex that much stronger. You know, it's like the DP for um, that short that I told you about that got me into Darren, Darren Aronofsky's office. His name is Charles Pokel. I don't know if you guys know him, but he did a movie called Christmas Again. It was an Independent Spirit nominee and it was a Sundance nominee and... Um, should check it out. It's on Netflix now, but um, he hadn't finished that yet, you know. And but now he's, you know, like it's often now not he's often. fancy pants. Yeah, yeah. Now he's fancy <laughs> pants, but it's like the point is, is like as we move on in our careers, like maybe the phone. He was working on a current project, and he the phone rang, and it was him. He's like, "Hey, I got a scene where a guy gets choked unconscious, right? So like, what are the realistic 
things that happen when, you know, because of all my years in mixed martial arts, I've seen a lot of people getting choked out, you know, and so I can explain to them, oh, this might happen. I've seen this happen. I've seen this happen, you know, and the same with, um, I mentioned in my email to you guys, uh, her name is Jacqueline Dow. She was a NYU student. I worked on her thesis film, which was a pilot and it was just so good. And, you know, it got her into the, she was a finalist in the HBO director's fellowship. Right. And, um, it wasn't a big stunt. It was literally to help teach an actor how to fall and get tackled safely and make sure the set was safe for that guy. But now we have a relationship. So now she's moved on and she's brought me in to do some other things, you know, and, and it goes back to like, yeah, I mean, your comment about up and coming directors, not knowing what they could do, you know, like her, the, I worked on this proof of concept with her for HBO. It was the first time she ever worked with a stunt double. I helped her cast a stunt double for a 12 year old girl who had to fall on the stairs. Right. And after it was over, can I ask how old the stunt double was? Oh, she was a, like, uh, like an adult. Yeah. Mid twenties, mid twenties, but a really good double. And, you know, there's about four or five small women in, in the New York area that get all the, the kid double jobs. I knew, uh, out here, a gymnast turned stunt performer who was quite petite and was like Alice in the Alice in Wonderland movie for basically 80% of the shots, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But she, so she worked with the stunt double and, um, after we were done, she's like, I can't believe like it's so I got to do so much more than I thought I was going to be able to do because of the abilities of the stunt performer and falling on the stairs and all that, you know, where she thought she could only go this far with a 12 year old girl. And then she got an adult who's trained. And then she was like, oh, my God, this scene just ended up so much better than I expected. You know, she's like her words were it's a new tool in my toolbox that I never knew that I had. Well, speaking of that, I know I have to wrap up soon, but I had I had two topics I want to touch on super quick. I think the first one might be a quick answer, Um, but they're both for kind of newer directors or directors that haven't worked with stunts much or are trying to work with limited budgets. First question is, let's say I do have I want to make a short film. I'm self-financing it. I'm not I don't have a ton of money, but I do have a fight sequence in it. And I do want someone to fall and break a table or something a little exciting like that. What's the first step for me to find a person to talk to about this? Let's say I don't live in LA or New York. Uh, Okay. So I would say even if you don't live in LA or New York, you could go to stunt listing or you can go to stunt players or Stunt phone. Those are the, the big three. There's also iStunt. There's a, another one that's really specific to New York called CMG. But there's you go to one of these databases and on all of them, you can search by skill, you know, and you can search by what people can do. You can search by height, weight. It's basically for casting. You know, you'll get their resume because we don't have agents. You know, it's like we're just out there kind of word of mouth. That's the hard part about right. fact. But you are all SAG, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, most of the databases will also indicate whether someone's union or, or SAG eligible or, or non-union. Right. But but so if I'm looking not for someone to fall, but I'm for someone to tell me how if I can even do this thing, more like someone to read the script and, you know, tell me what what on if, if what's what I stunty want to do and what isn't. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I would say still go there and find someone, even if you may not work with them. And just reach out to them and say, hey, I mean, that's how all the all, that's how most of the student filmmakers that have reached me or the new filmmakers that have found me like uh, I just worked on a short film. It's the one real job that I did this year, you know, and the person just 
Googled stunts in New York and happened to find me and called and just was very honest. It was like, Hey, I've got this short we're working on and we need a fight and we need, you know, is most of us, most of us performers, I think will be very glad to help you and point you in directions. You know, like even, I, I told him, I said, look, this is what you would need to do. This is the current COVID requirements. This is like what you would need for insurance. This is what you would need for X, Y, Z. If I'm your guy, awesome. If I'm not your guy, that's cool too. You know, but this is, these are the kinds of things that you would, that you would need. So I would say, just don't be afraid to reach out, you know, just, but to so reach just, out. just to get nitty gritty about it. At what point am I, do I need to spend money to get, do like, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think once you've nail somebody down, that is going to work for you. It, let's say if it was you calling me and, and we kind of gelled and there was a, a good vibe there and you liked my energy and the way that I seem to break things down for you, then it's like, okay, I want to hire you, you know? And so let's, you have to have the talk Turkey moment, you know, like what will it cost to hire you, you know? And do you usually have like a flat rate or a day rate or the sag rate? Like how do, how do you, if it's, if it's prep time, all that stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, everybody's going to be different. Um, If it's a sag production, you know, that is kind of established you know, I don't want to advocate other things, but there's other things you can do to get around that. You know, like you can negotiate, like even the SAG contracts give you permission to negotiate a better right, rate. Well, the ultra low budget is right. You can't yeah, like pay someone like 125 bucks a day or something. Yeah. And, and, and you can do deferred. SAG you performers, deferred I think. Yes. Yeah, or the stunt or performers, stunt I think, performers. Are, are maybe under a slightly different. I think stunts. A little higher. A stunt yeah, performer, but, but, you can defer, but a stunt coordinator, you can't. Like a department head gets paid. I guess the thing that I always run into, and Matt, I'm sure you've run into this too, is like you want to do some sort of wire work. You want to do that. Uh, you have a comedy bit and you want to do that cliche thing where someone SWAT team repel, you know, comes in through the ceiling, right, uh, on the wire. And then the producer's like, yeah, that's way too expensive. There's no way we can afford to do that. Is that way too expensive? Like, is it super expensive to get trusses and rig people and have someone come down? Well, like- I mean, super expensive is kind of a relative term. But I mean, if you want to do that, a good look, every let's let's say you called me and you want to do that. I would I know several riggers that I would refer you to, you know, uh, that I could refer you to. And they would tell and they you. they usually like, own the gear too? Most of them do. You know, most of them, most of the, the veteran guys do. And sometimes you might have to rent the truss. But most of the guys own their own, you know, tech line and harnesses and all the stuff that, that you would need, you know. And, and they'll break it down for you. Like, hey, look, let's talk about the stunt. Because they all want to work. You know, it's not like they're going to, everybody wants to work. So they're going to try and give you a rate that is doable for you, but also doable for them. But there will come a point where if it's like, if it's too low, it's going to be like, well, you can't really do all of this, you know, but a good coordinator might, like I said before, they might help you figure out a way to do what you want in a way that you didn't consider, you know, that you can still right. tell the they're story. Like you could just really call the SWAT team, tell them there's a bomb <laughs> <laughs> as they yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's important. It's important to talk to them. I mean, it's you know, even if they you don't hire them, just there are always things. I'll give you an example. I, I worked with a another thesis film from uh, another university in in New Jersey, and um, they had a fight. They, you know, and they had all the young actors in this thesis film. And uh, one of the things that I do that is not commonplace in the industry at all, 
but I do it on everything that every student film that I work on, I do it. And, and, you know, it's basically, I imported this from my life as a combat sports event supervisor and organizer is I give anybody doing the stunts essentially a quick medical intake. Like, have you ever had a concussion? Do you have any allergies? I'm basically doing what the ambulance driver would do. I'm doing it in advance. You know, I'm just doing a quick rundown. Like if it's uh, do you have sickle cell? Like most, like sickle cell disease, for example, is the number one non-traumatic killer of football players, college football players. And it's, you know, predominantly African-Americans. So like, there's all these questions you want to ask, like, do you have asthma? Yes. Okay. You got to make sure we have your inhaler when you're on set. Like if you're in the middle of an asthma attack, like you're not going to be able to tell us where you're inhaled. You know, so all these basic things. So on this thesis film, the last question I ask is always, is there something, if we have to call an ambulance, like what do you need to tell them? What do they need to know? And this particular actor had thalassemia, which is a bleeding disorder, right? It's a, it's, if they took a really hard hit, even by accident, they could be internally bleeding and die tomorrow and you would never know, you know? And the only reason we knew was because I give this intake, you know? So one of the things I always tell people, if you can have anybody doing anything physical, I mean, I think it's a good idea for anybody on set, but if anybody doing anything physical, you should kind of get that information. So she got clearance from her doctor. I said, listen, I'm not going to let you do this scene until your doctor says you're cleared for like light contact sports, you know? And she got the clearance from her doctor, did the scene, everything was cool. Coming from combat sports and moving into film, in combat sports where everything is so tightly organized with regard to safety, not just one ambulance, but two ambulances at every, you know, at every event and all these kinds of things. And then you, everybody, you know, all the pre-medical testing and everything that you have to do as an athlete, you know, I'm not saying that needs to be done for every stunt performer. Like if you're doubling Brian Cox because he doesn't want a water balloon thrown in his face for on succession, like, I don't know if you need to get an MRI, you know what I mean? But it's like a basic questionnaire that could be on file is important with like your emergency contact, you know? Things like that. Yeah, I love that so much. I, you know, it's interesting because I think that, again, just kind of opening up people's minds about what it is to to perform stunts and to coordinate stunts, you know, there there is a producer brain as part of it as well. You know, like it's it, there's a lot of different disciplines going on. But but going back to Oren, your point about like us being in circumstances where we, we really want us to have a stunt and your producer says no or, or whatever... To me, it kind of feels like a version of any other request. It's just that you and I have less experience and therefore a lighter Rolodex, right? Like right. if but you, also if someone you say, could tell hey, me that it costs a thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. Like I literally right. have no you have idea. no idea exactly. But if you're like, hold on, let me just text my guy Steve. You know, in the same way, if I want a Technocrane. I know approximately how much that is. And I know a couple people who could come in for a half day. And because they know it's me asking, you know, they, they cut you a rate because they know that you, I'm going to come back to them a bunch of times or whatever, or whatever it is, you know, whatever the, the piece of gear is. And so I think that maybe the other big takeaway from this episode is just kind of like getting to know all of your different craftspeople and building relationships with them so that when you know, you get hit up by a producer who's like, hey, I need a great stunt performer or a great rigger or a great coordinator. Do you know anyone? You have a couple people you can call, you know? 
Yeah, and it's like it's the example you you gave Oren, like a like fast some rappelling, right? Some fast roping, and like you may not need a, a truss and a whole setup. You might need just a scissor lift and a licensed scissor lift operator, you know, just to get high enough out of frame so you can. You know, you might not need everything you think you need. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's kind of something I really love talking about on this podcast is like how much things actually cost. Because as a young filmmaker, I was always just really intimidated by, oh, that's a TV show. They have millions of dollars. If they have a trance light, there's no way I can get a trance light. And then you're like, oh, actually, you know, for $1,500, you can get a custom trance light or whatever. You're like, that's actually in my my budget my kickstarter budget you know and so I, we had michael gallagher a director on uh he told us he got billboards all around the city i to me you don't do that unless you're universal studios but he's like oh no i called clear channel you know for four thousand dollars i got 20 bus benches from even him. better like, though because I, I love this anecdote so much he didn't know the name clear channel he just looked at billboards and like saw, oh, okay, Clear Channel is what all of these billboards are say. That must be the company. And then called them and then taught himself all of the jargon that he needed to know to understand what it was that he was even asking. Like, it's such a great example of how filmmaking works. It's just kind of like, look at it and figure it out and call people. Yeah, it, absolutely. Basically. Like, if- most stunt coordinators, like veteran stunt coordinators, like if you call, say, Stunts Unlimited or, you know, that's like one of the big ones out by you guys in L.A. And, you know, you may have you may get a top notch veteran coordinator on the phone who may not want to do it himself, but may have a protege, may some have somebody who he would pass the work on to that is capable of doing what you need, you know, or somebody that he's grooming or, you know, it's I always say, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's like reach out, and if they don't talk to you, they don't talk to you. You know, but I think most of the time, I've found at least the stunt community is very they circle the wagons a lot. You know, and, and part of that has to do with the the safety nature of things, keeping things safe. But I've also found every single person I've ever worked with to be really giving and open if you ask questions. You know, and because they want to, you know, in the end, they're creative people too and they they want to see great stuff succeed and they know if they build a great relationship with you that could yeah. mean future yeah. work love it well uh Oren, did you have one other topic you wanted to, to jump into no no that that was it basically how much does uh repelling or getting hit by a car cost because honestly i have i want to make this short and it's it seems to me that there needs to be a really nice fight like a really good fight sequence in it and i'm trying to figure out my way out of it so I don't have to do the fight sequence. But like, honestly, just talking to you, it's like, maybe I could do a good fight sequence on a shoestring budget. Call the guys up. Yeah. You've revealed the other secret to the show, Steve, is that um, it's uh, (laughs) we have guests on based off of, yeah, we're trying to (laughs) figure out who, (laughs) uh, like, who do we need to meet next? But to your, to your question about cost though, there is variability, right? So like, you have obviously like if it's a SAG thing, you have the SAG rate, then there's the stunt adjustment. And then therein lies the latitude, you know? So the better question might not be, what is this cost? The better question to be honest with the person and say, Hey, look, this is what I've got to spend. What can I do? Like, where can we shift this budget around? You know, like if there's a fight scene, can we hire two guys as opposed to four guys, you know, and this is the conversation I had with the, with the, the, the filmmaker that 
had the tactical scene. I'm like, well, do you really need four guys, you know, for this scene? Can you do it with three? Can you do it with two? I mean, and, and particularly for that scene, because it was like, um, it was shot floor level. So you were just seeing their legs as they were coming into the, the room that they were clearing. Like you yes, could so you literally have three guys and four pairs of pants. Exactly. You could have, <laughs> you could have just doubled people. One up. guy and a yeah. green screen. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that Steve, I think that you brought up that I think is worth really highlighting is that as a negotiation tactic, you know, you're not maybe going to get the cheapest price by saying, this is what my budget is, but you build so much trust and goodwill with people who potentially are, they're certainly putting their health on the line, if not their lives on the line. And so being transparent of like, this is how much I have to work with means that you're a team player that can then collaborate with someone to find the right solution rather than, you know, if I was like, Steve, how much would it cost for you to get hit by a car is 50 bucks enough that you're just off on the wrong foot. Even if you say yes, the saving, however much money it w- the difference would be is going to hurt you in the long run. Well, cool. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for chatting with us and for emailing us. And for, oh, it's uh, great, man. I, I loved it. Reaching out. It's great to it's see you guys great. in person now. It's just like, <laughs> it's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Matt wants it to be weird. I don't think so. I, I wish it was weird, but or and every time I see you in person, I'm like, huh? Oh, yeah. right. That's I keep forgetting. One time I was at Intelligentsia here in Silver Lake, the coffee shop, and some guy was like, "Hey, uh, are you Oren Kaplan from Just Shoot It?" And I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Yeah, I've seen you here many times." I was like, "Oh, why is this the first time you talk to me?" He's like, "I don't know. It's kind of weird for me to just walk up to you." Yeah, I know you. You don't know me, and, and I'm like, no, please walk up to me. <laughs> like, you, you have no want. idea how happy it makes me to text Matt and say, "Hey, someone recognized me," and him to say, I "Nobody am, ever recognized." No me. one ever recognized. I look like everybody. The great joy in my life is making Matt <laughs> feel <laughs> like uh, people, like I'm the uh, more famous of the podcast hosts. Yeah, Oren's the popular one. Thanks, everyone. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, no. cool. Are you down to stick with us for an unpaid endorsement? Yeah, absolutely, man. Unpaid endorsements. Okay, I have one. It has almost nothing to do with stunts, but it is kind of amazing. It's uh, you did. We did talk about editing, so it's kind of related to editing. But in Adobe Premiere Pro, the 2020, whatever, you know, I guess everyone that is using Adobe Premiere nowadays is on the latest version, um, there's this essential sound panel, right? You go to window essential sound and it lets you kind of tweak your dialogue and your various sound effects music. And it's always been okay. I've kind of used it. It's like, it's kind of like sound mixing for dummies and it never worked that well, but they just added a new tab to it that lets you search for Adobe stock music and you literally just click on it. And there's like thousands of music tracks and you can just type like upbeat folk or like angry rock and roll or whatever. And you'll just, it's like, you don't even leave your editing application. Then you get, just get a list of tracks and you can just like scroll through them. And if you hit play on them, it'll play your video with that music. That's cool. It's so awesome. And then if you like it, you just drag that track into the timeline. How does licensing work with that stuff? So it's interesting. Um, So there's no watermark or anything. You can use it as much as you want in Premiere. But if you try to export it, it tells you, just so you know, you this is not licensed, so we're exporting like a low-quality version of the music. Um, if you want to use it for anything commercial, 
you have to license it. And you can do that by right clicking on the track and just say, license this track. <laughs> I mean, it's so easy. I actually, you know, but you I have to pay have... for the track in some way. Yes, right? I have. I have Premiere open right now. I mean, I'm going to right click on it. Oh, so you can download 10 songs a month for 30 bucks a month. Um, the first month is free, so you can get 10 if you're working on something right now. Oh, that's for an annual subscription. If you have a monthly subscription, then you get three assets a month and it's 30 bucks a month. Cancel anytime. But you, your assets roll over. So you get like 36 a year. So that's if you want like a, a thing. And right, if I would have clicked confirm right now, it would have automatically charged me because, you know, I'm already in the system. But it seems pretty inexpensive. I mean, it's kind of nuts how easy it is. Because you don't even have to go. Usually you go to music library, you look for stuff, you play, you download all these things. There's watermarks. Your client's like, why does it keep saying premiumbeats.com? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's really cool. Check it out. That's pretty great. Um, Steve, what you got, sir? I got, um, this is something I use all the time. And people ask me all the time, what do I use to rip footage for reels and things like that? So I use, my all-time favorite is OBS Studio. And it, I don't oh, know if you guys use it. It's called Open Broadcast Studio. It's open yeah, source. Most people use it for, for like streaming. Yeah, yeah like Twitch streaming. For and Twitch stuff. and stuff. Huh. But it is, I've never been blocked by any source or service, you know, streaming service or anything. I never get, you know, the black screen where you get the black screen and just the audio. Oh, so this is especially good if you're trying to get something off of Netflix yep. or something like that. Yep, yep. For yeah. for um, educational or, or uh, private use. Or for only. your reel. For, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, reels oh, or are, for reels you, are your fair actual reel. use, right? Reels yeah. are fair use. I actually just... Wait, so if you wanted to pull a scene from devs, you go to a web browser... And then you use OBS to record the screen, or can you actually record you can, the video? Itself? So you can do either. You can record directly, like so. You have different options. You have about six or seven different options, and how you you can just do screen capture. You could do window capture only. You can actually do it where I think it's essentially like OBS functions as your browser. So you take the the web address and plug it in, and then it plays from there. And you can choose what export format you want you know i mean it's just so and it good. looks good it gets like the 30 24 frames 30 frames yeah, per yeah every, everything you saw in my reel was was ripped from there and um i've never had a problem with it um sometimes like i i use it in combination with firefox because some of the other browsers like um collaborate in blocking of footage so firefox obs that's my go-to formula for getting the your cocktail Yes, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Those are two very handy, practical, unpaid endorsements. And I'm going to follow up with one. Uh, comforter. <laughs> I do like my comforter, uh, but that's not what I'm really going to recommend. I'm going to recommend a video essay by our favorite Tony Zhu, but he did it for Filmstruck, not for every frame of painting. He's done a handful of those out there with Filmstruck, RIP, but the YouTube channel and uh, is still around. So the video essay I'm recommending specifically is Howard Hawks and the Art of the Screwball Comedy. Uh, I recently rewatched Hudsucker Proxy, which is like a His Girl Friday homage pretty explicitly. So that's Coen Brothers, but Howard Hawks did His Girl Friday, uh, Ball of Fire, a lot of like uh, you know, bringing a baby, like the, the, 
the classic fast talking, you know, movies from back then that the Coens were so inspired by. And what's great about this one specifically is that they show an example of how Hawks does framing and composition to make things snappier and more chaotic and funny. And then they show a similar film also based off of the stage play that his girl Friday is based off of and show you how blocking can make something really flat. And so uh, it's got entertaining and interesting and like makes you want to watch a thousand movies after you've seen the the video essay, but also has a very practical knowledge baked in there as well. So uh, Howard Hawks and the art of the screwball comedy uh, is my recommendation. It's on Filmstruck. Oh, awesome. I think I've read that book Hawks on Hawks, or at least I've seen oh, really? it on many shelves. That's cool. I'll, I will check it out. I'm a huge Tony Zhu fan. Well, Howard Hawks is, um, he's the bee's knees. You get me? So, uh, well, guys, this was great. Steve, where can people learn more about you, what you do, and reach out to you in, in this case as well? Uh, yeah, basically on all social media, Sambo Steve, one word. Sambo the martial S-A-M-B-O. Art. Yep, S-A-M-B-O, Steve. Like on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, pretty much everywhere. Perfect. Uh, nice and clean. Yeah. yeah. Facebook, my name, you know. There you go. There you go. Well, Steve, uh, we can't wait to uh, see you um, get punched and fall down many times in the future. Me too. Uh, safely. 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 Course, exactly. And coordinate Wearing um, a mask. people getting punched well, as well. 80% safe. 80% safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you want to learn about all the things that we talked about, you can check out justshootatpod.com for links to the things that we have brought up on the show. Uh, you can follow us across all social media at justshootitpod. And you can follow me personally at Mr. Matt Enlow on Instagram and uh, Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at OKaplan. On Twitter, I'm at SmiteyPileg. And you can email us. We love to hear from you. It's justshootapod at gmail.com. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And our social media maestro is Derek Aiello. And you're listening to music from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com acast and befaler mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætte af alle de der podcaster, forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.